Bibles to Matthew chapter 26 as we continue uh, in Matthew's gospel. We have seen uh, Jesus with his disciples the night before he is crucified. He has shared the Passover meal in chapter 26 with his disciples. And there during the Passover meal in the upper room instituted the Lord's Supper, taking the bread and taking the cup, his body, his blood that would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And after that supper, they went out from the upper room to the Mount of Olives and then entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there we saw Jesus pouring out his heart in prayer to his heavenly Father in agony, fixed and resolved to carry out the will of God, that on the next day, Friday, Good Friday, uh, he would give himself uh, on the cross for the sin of God's people. While in Gethsemane, Judas, having betrayed the Lord, the chief priests and the elders now come to seize Jesus, to arrest him. And so that's where we pick up Matthew 26, beginning at verse 57. Matthew 26, verse 57. Listen now to God's word. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Whether it was in Jesus' day in the first century or our own day, still today, we all know the significant influence that judges and courts and court decisions uh, can have upon individuals and organizations, even whole societies. Probably most of us are aware just this last week our nation heard the nomination of a Supreme Court justice to serve on the highest court uh, in our land, a court that every year hears about 100 to 150 cases, a court that historically has decided very significant and landmark decisions and cases, cases like the Dred Scott decision in 1857, centered around slavery and freedom. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education, 
the beginning of the desegregation of schools in the 1950s. Perhaps most well known to us, many of us, is Roe v. Wade in 1973. Significant, monumental decisions, and yet as monumental as these cases have been in shaping a nation's landscape, there is no trial or case of greater significance uh, than the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus has entered into this trial. All four Gospels give accounts, details, surrounding the trial of Jesus. When you take the four Gospels together in regards to his trial, this is what we learn. He's arrested the night before his crucifixion. John's Gospel alone in chapter 18 tells us that he is first taken to Annas, not Caiaphas. Annas, a former high priest, uh, father-in-law of Caiaphas. He served as high priest from around 6 A.D. to 14 A.D. He was a part of one of the influential families uh, among the priesthood. After being questioned by Annas, he is then taken to Caiaphas, still the night before his crucifixion. There with Caiaphas, the whole Sanhedrin had gathered together. This is the high Jewish court. After Caiaphas, he's then given into the hands of the Romans on Friday morning, Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pilate was the governor of Judea, where the temple and where Jerusalem existed within Judea. After Pontius Pilate, he's then taken to Herod, which is only recorded in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 23. Herod was ruler of the northern part of Galilee, where Jesus had spent most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Herod happened to be in Jerusalem, perhaps for the Passover feast. Pontius Pilate delivers him over to Herod. Herod, we're told, it questions Jesus extensively and then sends him back to Pilate. And then Pilate will deliver him over to death. Though the Gospels tell us both Herod and Pilate, Pilate find no guilt uh, in Jesus, Pilate will still deliver him over to death. And so we confess when we read the Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. From Thursday evening through Friday morning, Jesus will pass through the hands of many people, Annas, Caiaphas, the whole Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, Herod. He's going to be looked upon by many people. Roman soldiers, Jewish leaders, his own disciples, the crowds. And there's a weighty question that Pilate is going to ask in the next chapter when he questions Jesus. It's a question that all of these figures and all of these groups, including you and I, have to respond to. It comes in chapter 27, verse 22. Pilate says to the people, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? That was actually the question that led to the conversion of the late John Stott. When he was a youth, he tells of the story of how he came to know Christ, that a young man had preached on this text, Luke 27 or Matthew 27, verse 22. And for the first time in his life as a young person, he was convicted 
and thought to himself, I didn't know I had to do anything with Jesus, who was called uh, the Christ. And yet Matthew's gospel provides us help with this question. Because Matthew's aim, perhaps more than all four of the gospel writers, is discipleship. Matthew is not just giving us details about the trial that Jesus is facing, but to cause us to consider how are we treating Christ? How are we viewing and seeing and relating to Jesus who is the Christ? And one of the ways Matthew does this so wonderfully, led by the Spirit, is through the lens of Peter. We see it not only in our text, we'll see it again with the denials of Peter next week. So Peter serves as a kind of helpful window into discipleship. He, along with all the disciples, earlier that night when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, left the Lord and fled. That's what we're told in verse 56. But then after Jesus is led to Caiaphas, we're told in verse 58 that Peter was following Jesus at a distance into the courtyard of the priest to see the end. What is the end going to be? What is the outcome going to be? We see Peter as a disciple up and down, up and down throughout his following the Lord. It was Peter who had professed faith in Christ, Jesus as the Christ in chapter 16 of Matthew, a turning point in the gospel. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter, to only verses later in chapter 16, rebuking the Lord, pulling him aside, when he began to hear Jesus talk about his necessary suffering and death. Up and down. Peter promises in chapter 26 never to fall away, and then only to leave the Lord and to flee when he's arrested. And now we see him following but it's at a distance. He's unsure of what the outcome is going to be for the Lord. I love what Matthew Henry writes about Peter. Peter followed Jesus at a distance, midway between courage and cowardice. He followed him, but it was afar off. And here began Peter's denial. For to follow Jesus afar off is little by little to go back from him. He should have gone up to the court and attended on his master and appeared before him. But he went in and sat with the servants, not to silence their rejections, but to protect himself. There's something instructive for us in that. How many times do we seek to merely protect ourselves rather than to bear witness of the Christ that we profess. In all the ways that we see people in the passion story viewing and relating to the Lord, Peter helps us to ask ourselves, how am I relating to the Lord? Am I bearing witness of the Lord? What is my relationship with Him? Am I merely following Him at a distance? And Jesus enters into this trial. It's really a mock trial. It's unlawful on several fronts. Not only did Jewish law forbid the Sanhedrin to hold trial after sundown, notice Judas has just tipped off the chief priests, letting them know of Jesus' whereabouts, and the Sanhedrin has been able to gather together to indict the Lord, 
to carry out a verdict quickly. Jewish law forbid the Sanhedrin to meet in this kind of way. And what has Jesus been accused of? What is he guilty of? We see the leader's motives in verse 59. The whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Without evidence, the desired outcome was already predetermined. And why did they want him dead? John's gospel tells us in chapter 11. If you look at John 11, verse 47, it says, The chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council, likely at a previous time, and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Jesus' influence had become a threat to the Jewish religion. Their existence and power were at stake. The problem was that the Sanhedrin did not hold the authority to put people to death for capital crimes. That was an authority that was held by Rome. So the chief priests needed to find evidence that would suggest something treason of treason, sedition. Something that would suggest a threat to Rome's authority so that the Romans could put him to death. But what does the text say in verse 60? They found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Did Jesus actually say that? It's it's a misquote. We remember these words from John chapter 2. Jesus did not say, I will destroy the temple, but you destroyed this temple and I will raise it in three days. And we're told, of course, that he was referring to his own actual body. The witnesses that come forward are weak. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we're told the testimony of the witnesses didn't even agree with each other. Finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up and he says, have you no answer? What is it that these men testify against you? And then, what are the next words? But Jesus remained silent. It's just a simple note about a kind of passive act on the part of our Lord. And yet it's here that we begin to see what's for us most important. It's the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. The first century was a hotbed of false messiahs. Jesus of Nazareth is different. The text says he remains silent. The sinless, guiltless son of man does not defend himself. Though innocent, he says not a word here. And yet his silence speaks volumes. His silence really shouts and echoes back to the words of the prophet Isaiah, the suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 53. This one who would come to bear the sin of the people of God, to begin to restore all things in creation. Isaiah 53, 
We, we heard it read earlier. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. His silence meant nothing to Caiaphas, perhaps just a frustration. His silence means still today nothing to the world. It's just a passive, seemingly defenseless act. But to us, who profess the name of Christ as our Savior, as our Shepherd, it means everything. It means life with God through the suffering and the death of Christ for me. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. Though this trial appears to have Jesus on the defensive, though he appears to be the one on trial, I love what James Boyce said of this text. He said, in the last analysis, it's not Jesus who is on trial. That's past and that is over. You and I, the world, are on trial. And the question before the world is, what will you do with the Lord Jesus? Everyone is doing something with Jesus, whether it was in his own day, in his earthly ministry, or still today. Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the crowds, Pilate, Herod, and still today. How do people view Jesus For many people today, Jesus is a mere example of compassion and mercy. And yet nothing more. For others, he's a social reformer. Seeking to undo some of the social ills that surface in society. Others see him as a revolutionary, someone who's a kind of anti-establishment figure. But what is Jesus charged with? Verse 63, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. It is as you say. In Mark's gospel, the chief priest asks, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. A powerful claim, the divine name of God. I am who I am the name by which God revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament. Jesus was not challenged or arrested or opposed by the chief priests and elders because he was a merely compassionate figure or because he merely sought to correct social ills. It was because he claimed to be the Son of God, the divine Lord, and his works evidenced it. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the Christ. How fitting are C.S. Lewis's words, which many of us have 
perhaps heard before from mere Christianity when Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Not only does Jesus say, I am the Christ, the Son of God, revealing his identity, but he goes on to claim divine power. In verse 64, he says, you have said so, and I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a clear reference to Daniel and Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7 of Daniel. We've heard it referenced earlier back in the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24. The promise of this Son of Man figure coming to receive an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that would come that would rule over all kingdoms, over all the earth. In Daniel chapter 7, this is the reference. Verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Through Christ's death and through his resurrection, our Lord is seated at the right hand of God with all power, all dominion, all authority. And we, in this day, a day in which many, many people are looking to and trusting in various forces, various powers at work in the world, political powers, political leaders, social movements and social organizations, might the church put her ultimate trust in the Lord? There is nothing and there is no one with power like the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has a power to forgive sins? Who has a power to create new life out of death? Who has a power to create peace where there was once Hostility. Seated at the right hand with power. That word, power, uh, dunamai, dunameo, where we get the idea of dynamite. Explosive power. It is Christ and his power that dwells within us as his people. As Paul says in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work Within us. May those words that we sing be true for us. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. 
From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, how we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has been tried and who is the true Savior in in Christ. How, Lord, we put our trust in him. How we put our trust in you. Lord, we pray that you would give us strength to follow after him with joy and loving obedience. That, Lord, we would see less and less of ourselves and more of our gracious and mighty Savior. Lord, we pray um, that you would give us peace in our hearts, uh, knowing again who it is who rules over all of creation, who has carried out a glorious redemption. Lord, may we find strength in this your word and what you have done for us. Lord, as you do this work, uh, we will offer our hearts in thanks and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.